This is The Hunger Podcast. My name is Josh Dalkey, and I will be your host as we join one another in exploring all the fascinating dimensions that go into living life as a hunter. I want to seriously thank you for taking the time to see what this podcast is all about. If you've chosen to press play and tune into this podcast, I'd say it's a safe bet that you have a decent idea of what you're going to get here. This is a podcast about hunting and being a hunter. So as your host, what is it that I can do to make sure this podcast is worth your precious time? At this point, my answer is pretty simple. Passion. My lifestyle revolves around hunting, and most of the deepest experiences I've racked up throughout my life have come as a result of viewing things through the lens of a hunter. I'm talking about people, places, adventures, food, and even being able to look out my window on a daily basis and recognize the beautiful simplicity of nature and everything the outdoors has to offer to enrich my time on this earth. So, we might run all over the map on this podcast, but I promise you that our mutual passion for hunting is what's going to dictate the content that we're going to share here. This means your feedback is critical. I want to be a sounding board for topics, ideas, and getting answers to questions that will help you grow as a hunter. And for that matter, help me. So please don't hesitate to reach out. For now, a great way to do that is to find me on Instagram at the Hunger Official. Hit me up with direct messages or comment on photos or videos that I have posted there, and it won't take long for me to get back to you. This first episode means a lot to me, not just because it's the official launch of the Hunger Podcast, it's because I'm bringing you to my rock, my foundation as a hunter, my family's 130-year-old farm in central Minnesota. I'm sitting down with my great-uncle, one of my primary hunting mentors who taught me what it means to be a hunter. Without this guy in this farm, there's no telling where I'd be right now. So much of my inspiration and the paths I've chosen to go down in life, both personally and professionally, were driven by my experiences on the farm. My great uncle, he's a, he's a man of few words, but I think you'll enjoy his stories, and I seriously appreciate you accepting this invitation to learn more about where I came from as we kick off the Hunger Podcast. Well, here we are. This is the first episode of the Hunger Podcast, and fittingly, um, I'm kind of taking it back to my roots to kick this whole thing off. And where I'm sitting right now, if I can describe it, it's my family's farm in central Minnesota that has been here for more than 100 years, actually close to 130 years. And I'm sitting here at the table uh, with my great uncle. We've shared a lot of good times at this table during deer camp and just sitting around during family events and shooting the breeze and catching up and uh, sharing stories and things like that. But this farm where it's situated is in a small county. It's a rural area. There's still quite a bit of agriculture here, as there has been since uh, folks first settled here back in the 1800s, including our family. But my great uncle has been here most of his life, and he continues to hold up the fort here. And this is a place where I grew up deer hunting. Uh, about the age of 12 is when I came up here and shot my first deer. Prior to that, I hung, uh, tagged along with my other uncles um, just to learn the ropes and 
see if it was something that I wanted to do. And of course, uh, I definitely did. It's been my primary passion my whole life hunting. And uh, it all started right up here at this farm. So when I say I'm sitting next to my great uncle, um, that's not just a descriptor for him. He's not just an uncle who's great, but he's actually my grandma's brother. So he falls under both categories. His name's Alan Skogland. And he's sitting here sipping on a, a beautiful glass of homemade wine that he fired up. Um, so I guess, Uncle, the first thing I'd like to do here is just introduce you and kind of go through um, some of the history of the farm. I think nobody nobody in our family knows it better than you. Probably so, yeah. Well, my grandpa Pete uh, homesteaded here. Um, he came over from Sweden and got married, but he lived up in Fargo-Moorhead for a while. My, my oldest uncle was born in 1890, and uh, somebody had to be here to homestead it, so somebody had to be here, but he didn't have really have the money to get going with, so he continued to work for the railroad. And then his wife, my grandma Kirsten, lived here for a couple of years by herself with two little infants. Uh, lived in a log house, a dug well, and it must have been pretty damn cold. The only winters here, you know, but <laughs> they did what they had to do to get going, you know. But the uh, place here was only about three acres open when Grandpa homesteaded it, and uh, the rest is all timbered. And that was pretty much all cleared off except for the building site here and then one little patch of woods up north here. But uh, lots and lots of work, lots and lots of work. And I'm, I'm correct in saying that uh, out of the remaining building sites here, that log home that you referred to is still standing, right? It's still there, yeah. yeah. And uh, I guess if you were here um, and you were looking around and you saw the building, you'd probably imagine that it's just a garage or something or a shed. But I'm actually looking out the window at it right now. And uh, it's still in pretty good shape. <laughs> <laughs> but no, as, as he said, I can't imagine um, how rough it was back in those times. And just the amount of grit and determination that that first homesteading generation had, especially coming to a place like this. I mean, even today, it's uh, it's kind of tough ground, isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, it's fairly rocky. Yeah. So what exactly drove them to jump on a boat and end up here? Well, I'm looking for better opportunities. Uh, a lot of European countries are getting overcrowded. They needed some place to go, and they headed here looking for freedom, you know. But uh, a lot of people wonder why they settled in this country here. There's better land further south. But uh, a lot of the people that came over from, well, even Finland and, and Sweden and Norway, they looked for land that was similar to what they left. It's kind, of, you know? it's kind of ironic. They they leave country that's rocky and tough, you know? and they they settle in country that's rocky and tough. You think that they would have maybe tried Florida or something? But a lot of Finlanders they settled even further north, um, even rougher, tougher country. But that's what they were familiar with, you know. There was some people that uh, came to this country. They settled in Iowa. But before they got the big drainage ditches in Iowa, they had a heck of a mosquito problem. They had, actually had a malaria, malaria problem. And so pumps of people left uh, Iowa and went on west to the drier desert, prairie country. So they left better land, but there was a reason why they left there, you know. That's that's incredible thinking about Iowa being rampant with malaria. That's yeah. uh, typically something you associate <clears throat> with 
other countries in the South. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, we still have some softball sized mosquitoes up here these days, <laughs> but I don't think too many of them are carrying malaria. So with the, with the farm here, what are some of your earliest memories, uh, growing up as a kid? I mean, obviously you were, you were born, um, well, I guess, where were you born? In, in the hospital in Bertha. Okay. So Bertha. 13 miles away. Yeah. So for people who aren't familiar, which is probably, I'd say just about everybody listening, even if you're familiar with Minnesota, you might not be familiar with areas like this. We're, uh, I believe we're technically in Eagle Bend. Yeah. Where we sit right here at this farm. Uh, Bertha is another small town just down the road, but there's a lot of these small towns up here in this county. And, uh, I would say a lot of that original heritage is still present, right? With, with quite, folks. Quite a bit of it. Yeah. Quite a bit of it. But as we've been seeing here, uh, as of late, um, some of those generations that have been still clinging on to that heritage, um, they're kind of falling through the cracks at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I know since I've been here, you've mentioned several folks are, uh, well, they've either passed away or they're, they're hitting the road. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's very few people that are here. There's the old timers here, you know. Well, uh, people in my dad's generation, they're all gone, you know, all gone. I've got uh, a couple of cousins over here that are farming, and one other cousin, her and her husband, they've retired and sold their farm. So very, very few farms up here uh, belong to the original families, you know, very few. So back to, uh, back to your upbringing here. Um, Talk a little bit about that and just what it was like growing up on the farm and what the farm looked like at that point and um, just some of your earlier memories. Well, it was a lot of hard work. Uh, it was principally a dairy farm here, but we also had chickens and pigs. Um, just about everybody had chickens and pigs and cows. So you had chickens for eggs and eggs to sell and, and chicken to eat and pigs uh, sell some little pig feeder pigs. And then they always had pigs to butcher, you know. So we were pretty self-sufficient here. Uh, for example, uh, one of my nieces asked my mother one time, what was it like during the Depression, the Terrible Depression? Mother said, well, it wasn't much different than any other time. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they were self-sufficient. You know, we had eggs, we had big garden, uh, meat, milk, you know. We put up a terrible amount of the stuff in the cellar, you know, uh, tubs and tubs of potatoes and squash and carrots. And, and of course, mother canned a terrific amount of stuff also, you know. <clears throat> and we didn't have electricity here until 1943. And uh, I don't know when it was we ever got a deep freeze here, but mother canned a lot of meat too, you know. But we generally butcher in a, <clears throat> butcher in the fall when it's cold and and uh, you could keep the meat then, you know. I, I mean, the winters here are still kind of tough. Uh, I think the there's definitely been a warming trend, so maybe they haven't been as difficult as back in the day, but I not having electricity and having a freezer or um what did you what did you do for heat back then was it all wood burning we burned pretty much wood but then uh, <clears throat> later on we started buying coal you could buy coal pretty cheap at the local feed mill or produce here in eagle bend but uh some of the extremely cold nights dad would sit up all night by the stove keeper soaked up to keep the house going here you know what was, was uh, what was the school situation like? Was it was it uphill both ways? It was, yeah. You know, it was a mile and a half uphill both ways, yeah. <laughs> no, I do remember uh, faintly <clears throat> some kind of story. Um, you're going to have to refresh my memory, but 
something along the lines of uh, somebody went into town to get something. And, and they... Oh, that was my <laughs> my Uncle Martin. He went to town to get something, and he's supposed to get some butter, too. And uh, he got home, and he had forgot the butter. And so <laughs> Grandma made him walk back to town to get him get again. So he made two trips to town, seven and a half miles one way. So he, he 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 walked thirty miles that day just get some stuff from town. But now my uh, my grandpa on, on my mother's side, uh, they raised some wheat, and then they'd have the wheat milled for the flour, and there was a a mill, on Spruce Center. They used water power there. There was some falls there, and uh, he would take a fifty pound bag of wheat to walk walk over there, to have it milled and walk home again. It was probably about uh, I don't know. Uh, two, three, four, about five miles one way. And he didn't take the horses because he wanted to save on the horses for field work. So <laughs> what was he, what was he using to haul it? Some kind of pole wagon or? What, the, the flower? Yeah. I mean, he carried it. He carried a 50 pound sack of flour. Man, yeah. I, I don't yeah. think I could carry a 50 pound <laughs> sack of flour down the driveway, <laughs> let alone that, that distance. But they, you know, they wore themselves out, you know, uh, um, my grandpa on my mother's side, he was only 73 when he passed on and his wife was 68. But when, when aunt grandpa Ann would turn 60, 61, she was walking and pushing a chair in front of her and she was just shot already, you know, but, but she had nine kids in 18 years, gardening, canning. And then probably at times he probably had three kids in diapers, washed them out in the buckets, you know, it's terrible life. <laughs> I mean, it's. There's no questioning. It's uh, it's brutal, but it's and I guess it's easier for me to say, looking back and and uh, not having to go through that. But to me, there's also um, I almost envy it in a way because it seems like it was uh, seems like it was a good life, a pure life, and uh, you know, I mean, living for every day versus nowadays, it's like sometimes people can't even find motivation to get out of bed. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. With with uh with you growing up and whatnot, I'm assuming you went to elementary and high school here. Uh, elementary to country school here for the first six years, but then we went to Eagle Bend High School. After that, the school was too crowded, so then they decided to send the uh, seventh and eighth graders to town. But uh, the first six years was the elementary school and country school here. Yeah. Now, when you say send them to town, what do you mean by that? At high school in Eagle Bend. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So, um, after high school, then did you, did you have an idea already in high school, what you wanted to do after high school or how did that all play out? I had signed up to join the Navy while I was still in high school and about, well, about three days after I graduated, I was off to boot camp. <laughs> so would you say, um, back then, was it, uh, was it way more commonplace for folks to come out of high school and enlist back then we had the draft and had the draft ceremony in the face so um uh, didn't have any money to do anything else with so i went in the service you know when i left here i had 15 dollars. that was my estate and so what <laughs> prior to prior to heading out um had you had you left this area much before that no no so no. what was it what was it like and uh, actually where did you end up um, going to boot camp and all that. Great Lakes, Illinois. So was it, 
was it a whole new world once you once oh, you yeah. got out there yeah. and saw everything? Well, the furthest I'd been away from home before was go to Minneapolis, 150 miles. That's the furthest I'd been away from home before that. So was it? Uh, were you excited or were you were you worried or how? What? How did that feel? Um, I guess I wasn't worried, but probably not too excited either about going to the service, you know. But uh, right. But most of my classmates, uh, guys. Most of them ended up in the service one way or the other at that time, you know, because they still had the draft. And it was right after the Korean War, you know, just barely. <clears throat> and then, uh, so when when Vietnam came around, what, what did that look like for you? Um, I was concerned about getting dropped, uh, pulled back in, but uh, uh, I was never called back. But my brother ended up being drafted, and he went to Vietnam. So after... High school, after going into the Navy, where'd the road lead you then? Well, I, I was, um, after boot camp, I went to Norman, Oklahoma for Airman Prep School. And from there, I went to uh, Memphis, Tennessee, just out of Memphis, Tennessee, to a, a naval station there. And I went to school for, I think it was 27 weeks in aviation electronics there. <clears throat> and then from there, I was uh, stationed in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And I went to uh, instructor school there. And then I taught school the rest of the time I was in. So it wasn't, it wasn't bad duty. You went to work at quarter, quarter eight, you got off quarter after four. And as a petty officer, I only had duty one, one weekend out of a month. But then as a petty officer, I, I sat in the duty office and had a 45 on my hip and took coffee out to the guys on the march. And that was about it. <laughs> so it ended up being a pretty good gig. It was, yeah, it was, yeah. <clears throat> and then, uh, you ultimately ended up um, coming back from there, and uh, did you did you come back to the farm at all right away, or did you end up going to Minneapolis? To I, I came back here and, and uh, took a little vacation here, and then I went down to cities, and the third place I applied for a job, I got a job, and I stayed there for 32 and a half years. And so, <laughs> um, you know, having grown up on the farm, you said you came back here for a vacation. Is it safe to say that? you always knew that you would want to retire here. Yeah. Yeah. It always kind of held that, that special place in your heart. And, yeah. you know, knowing you today and having known you for my whole life, it's, uh, it's actually freaking astonishing to even picture you living in Minneapolis. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, had I not known that that's something I never would have guessed. It's, it seems like the, the total opposite of your DNA to be somewhere like that. Well, if I couldn't have got out of there on weekends, I probably would have gone crazy. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like uh, in Minneapolis back then? I mean, it, it was still, I'm guessing it was still, had a lot of growth going on. It was growing, but uh, it was pretty civil, you know. Right now, we have murder for every week down there. Back then, maybe a couple, three years, but it's changed so much now, so much. So as we... Uh, as we get in here to start talking about what I really want to get to, which is the hunting side, um, I guess I got to ask, how did you, even though you came back on weekends, how did you maintain your sanity down there with uh, not being able to do much in the outdoors? Or did you find things to do down there? Uh, there wasn't much to do down there outdoors. No, you could go to go to the park and go for a walk. That'd be about it. You know? So how did you, uh, you weren't making your own wine back then, but you must've been drinking somebody else's. <laughs> Well, back then I wasn't drinking wine, drinking beer. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the, in Minneapolis, what did, 
what did Minneapolis have for Al Skoglund to, to occupy his time? Not a heck of a lot. Not just, a heck of a lot. Just go to work, collect the paycheck, and you must have had some friends down there. A few. A few. Mostly people that I worked with. <clears throat> I will say, though, um, you've got a hell of a collection of handmade knives, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you made most of those uh well, I don't know if you're on the clock, but certainly at work, right? Actually, they, I could stay up to work and, and work. I was allowed to do that, you know. So they let you use the their machines there to work sure. on some of that yeah. kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. So while you were there, you built knives. Um, did you do any of your custom rifle work there? Yeah. So how did you, did you just pick all that up from scratch when it came to? Well, I, I was in electronics in the service, you know, and then I hired into the company as an electronics technician. But after a couple of years there, I decided I liked mechanics better. So I went to night school at Minneapolis Votech and took, I don't know, about three, four different courses there. And I switched over to mechanical entirely. So the hunting, um, back in the, I guess, uh, when you were still here before you ended up going to boot camp, that would have put us in what uh, what decade was that? Well, I was in the service from 55 to 59. Okay, so you were here um, in the, what, late 30s, early 40s? I was born in 38. Okay, so Todd County back then, um, what was there for game? Uh, fr from what I hear... You know, whitetails and a lot of other critters didn't really proliferate until you started seeing more massive agriculture and uh, more availability to food, and then the herds started growing and whatnot. But isn't it true that up here back then, it damn near make news headlines if someone saw a deer track? Oh, it was very rare to see a deer. Saw a track that was really something exceptional. But we had a lot of small game. We had grouse and we had pheasants and the ducks. A lot of small game to hunt. A lot of squirrels, you know. So was the was the hunting with our family um, at that point? Did it did it start and kind of maintain as more of a sustenance thing, or did uh, did my grandpa and great grandpa did they enjoy hunting, or what was their take on it? Uh, Dad hunted quite a bit. He was uh, more probably more of a duck hunter than anything. He had a old Winchester ninety seven pump with a thirty two inch barrel on, so I didn't make a very good grouse gun. <laughs> But he shot a lot of ducks, but right down a slough hole down here, there'd be ducks right there on a regular basis, you know. But uh, there was, at times, there was a lot of pheasants here, especially in the dry years, in the dry years when in the 30s. But uh, there was really no regulations on things back then, and there's a lot of farmers that ate pheasant all winter long. They'd come and, pheasants come and pick through the straw piles, you know, and they'd shoot them with 22s and ate a lot of pheasants. There was just a terrific amount of pheasants here at that time, you know. And, and uh, back, for those of you who are listening and didn't realize this, back then it was actually uh, a legal weapon to uh, use the crank that you would start your truck with to kill pheasants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dad, there was a bunch of pheasants in the ditch. He threw the crank out the window and killed a couple of them <laughs> one shot with the crank. <laughs> you know, and when they had the old, old model, model A's, Model T's, uh, sometimes they'd drive down the road, a guy would sit on each fender on the front there and shoot birds as they drove down the road. <laughs> <laughs> so not only could you, not only could you shoot off the truck, you could, um, 
use just about anything at your disposal to bring home a couple of pheasants. That's, you know, f for somebody in my generation, um, I always, I always just hear these stories and I definitely wish I could, um, rewind time and, you know, or jump in a time machine and go back and just see what that was like. Um, it's just, it seems like there was so much more freedom and you hear about, you know, kids walking to school with their rifles and maybe shooting some stuff to or from school and putting their rifle in the locker, that sort of thing. Oh yeah. Well, when my brother was in high school, he was in a, in a play and he was supposed to be a cop in a play. So he took one of my handguns with him to school and nothing thought of it, you know, no problem. <laughs> Or if a kid got a new gun, he'd bring it to school and show it off, you know. Hey, look at that. <laughs> but, but back then, no no kid ever thought he was going to use that gun to shoot anybody. Never, you know, never. It's a whole different attitude nowadays, you know. Can you uh, can you identify where, where that, where or how, from your perspective, how that shift occurred? I think... Uh, I think our media has got an awful lot to do with it. Our entertainment media has got an awful lot to do with it. You know, desensitizing these kids grow up. They're three years old and they're watching people being murdered on TV. And well, that's the way you do it. You know? Yeah. I think that certainly, um, it, I'd say it's almost not even arguable that that has to play a role in it. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. It's desensitization. But then, but then uh, there's no discipline on, on amongst kids anymore. You're not allowed to discipline your kids. You know, when I was a kid, there was a, well, at least three guns sitting around in the house here in a, in a corner of the room and the shelves on the shelf uh, <clears throat> and the window still next to it. And you didn't touch it because you weren't supposed to, you know? And that was that. Cause you knew what was going to happen. That's that. That's right. It's going to do it. <clears throat> and there wasn't, there wasn't a household around the countryside here that didn't have guns sitting around in and nobody locked the doors and the kids left the guns alone and, People didn't see anything either. It was it was no different than uh, you know I'm sure not messing with your dad's tool set. It just, guns were a tool, right? Yeah, yeah. And they were they were there to be respected. Oh yeah. The Hunger Podcast is powered by the Hunt Stand mobile app. Nearly two million hunters, including myself, use Hunt Stand to map out successful hunts and keep track of all the important details that matter to us as hunters. Whether you're hunting eastern whitetails from a tree stand, calling spring turkeys down south, or spotting and stalking big game out west, Hunt Stand will give you the cutting edge. Download Hunt Stand right now and save 10% on Hunt Stand Pro by visiting huntstand.com slash huntstandmedia. That's huntstand.com slash huntstandmedia. So can you remember some, uh, some of your earliest hunts? I mean, how did that work? Did, did your dad just hand you a rifle one day and cut you loose in the backyard or how did that go? Well, I think I was probably about 12 years old, 10, 12 years old. And dad never used it, used a 22. And, uh, of course you got to get permission to do it, but you did. And you went out and hunted squirrels and stuff when you're about 12 years old and, and pretty much on your own, you know? But there were no deer to hunt back then. We got more deer than we got pheasants now, you know, <clears throat> complete turnaround. <clears throat> yeah, it seems like that that trend um, where kids grew up, you know, hunting small game and learning that way. Uh, I feel like a lot of that is dead, at least here 
up in the Midwest. I think there's a little bit more of it still down in the South, but, uh, you know, for me growing up, my first hunting experiences were up here and they were with deer. And, uh, I, I kind of feel like I missed out on that opportunity in that era to just be able to grab a rifle and go for a walk and learn woodsmanship and, and learn, um, and learn how to shoot at animals with a, a small caliber rifle and just all those things that uh, kids were able to do back at that time to really become hunters and woodsmen. Yeah. Yeah. But you find uh, young people that come out of cities and probably haven't hunted hardly at all before and they go out and they're going to hunt deer and uh, they don't know how to act. You see a deer and they panic. They're so excited, you know, people empty their gun and never fire shots, stand there and pump the shells <laughs> on the ground. <laughs> and when they get done shooting, they say, I don't really know where I was aiming, you know. <clears throat> but uh, you grow up with it, and you're shooting squirrels in small game. At a young age, you're, you're more familiar with guns, and you don't get so panicked, you know. Yeah, I can remember one opening a deer season up here. Um, I think I heard eight consecutive shots, and I was wondering to myself, you know, what what kind of gun would somebody be using? Cause this is a slug area where we're at up here. So you can only use slug guns in this particular part of the part of the state here in Minnesota. Uh, you can't use center fire rifles. Um, there might be some exceptions for straight wall cartridges and uh, you can shoot handguns and you can shoot muzzle loaders, but you can't shoot center fire rifles like you can in a lot of other parts of the world. So um, to hear somebody bust off, eight slug rounds and I actually thought to myself before I left the stand that morning I was trying to go through and figure out what what would have held eight rounds and I'm like man I wonder if that was a, a snow goose gun and sure enough I remember leaving that morning and coming back to the house here and I drove by and there's that stand off the side of the road down there to the south of the winter farm in Jack's place oh yeah just I don't even know if it's a legal distance from the road but sure enough, there was a kid sitting up there, and I could see his, he had the big extended magazine tube on his shotgun. So it was probably his waterfall, um, you know, snow goose hunting gun. Mm -hmm. it's, that's the only uh, waterfall you can hunt without a magazine, uh, without your gun being plugged, without a shot restriction. But, uh, yeah, he, he emptied that gun, and he was still sitting there when I drove by him. So I'm pretty sure what you're talking about is what happened. He saw a deer and just... <laughs> lost his shit and sent them flying well pretty much if you hear one shot they probably got it two shots maybe three shots for sure not five shots wham 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 you know it's just blowing <laughs> holes in the air you know anything beyond anything beyond three is utter desperation yeah yeah so tell me about the before i get into my past up here and and my upbringing as a deer hunter tell me about what it was like with some of those first deer seasons or just watching the deer herd grow up here. Um, I mean, it went from zero to now, you know, I just saw 63 deer the other night watching one field. Yeah. Well, back in the seventies, now 71, we didn't even have a season here because of a short of deer, but then we'd have probably just one weekend to hunt, you know, and I can remember sitting on a stand all day for those two days and never see one deer, you know, what was, uh, how did you stay motivated when you weren't, when you just knew that you might shoot the only deer in the county? 
Well, you had to give it a try, you know. <laughs> so you you actually uh, influenced me um, growing up, and I guess this would be a good time for me to, to talk about my upbringing here as a hunter and a deer hunter. Um, so my, my uncles, uh, not my great uncle that's sitting here with me, but a couple of my other uncles would bring me up here. So your nephews, and like I said earlier in the podcast, first couple of years, I just tagged along. I kind of watched what was going on, observed. Um, then I was able to take firearm safety and I could start shooting uh, and hunting my first deer at the age of 12. And so I remember coming up here for that first deer season. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I said a word sitting here at the table listening to you guys talk because I was just listening to all the stories and just trying to soak it all in at this very table that we're sitting at right now. But from that young age, sitting here in this dining room, I'd look at your racks on the wall and you've got some really great whitetails that you've shot up here over the years. And you've got some mule deer that always really stuck in the corner of my brain because, you know, growing up in Minnesota and, and not having uh, traveled out West till a later age, these mule deer were just fascinating to me. And I remember you would tell me some of those stories about your big Western hunting adventures. And so I'd always come up here and I'd marvel at these racks on the wall, hoping one day that um, not only I'd be able to start putting some notches in my belt for the whitetails around here, but you know, eventually I'd want to get out West. And since then I've been very fortunate to, to grow as a hunter um, strictly based off the foundation that was built for me right here at this farm. And because of that, it, uh, it truly changed my life. It, it forged my career. Um, I've been an outdoor writer now for coming on about 10 years. I've done a lot of stuff in the media world with video production. I currently work for a mobile app company called hunt stand. So hunting, um, hasn't just been a, a hobby or a pastime of mine. Um, I think I knew pretty early on that if I could make a go of it and actually collect a paycheck off of working in, in an industry that would support my passion, um, that's something I wanted to do. So going through college, I continued to hunt, got up, got up here to this farm to deer hunt whenever I could. Usually it was only for opening weekend, but any time and budget I could eke out to go hunting, I would. And uh, eventually I had to make the decision in college to determine, all right, what am I going to do here? I got four years. I got a boatload of money. I'm going to have to invest in this diploma. What am I going to do? And so I did the, uh, the very cliche thing. I went to the career center at my university, which was the University of Wisconsin River Falls. And I sat down and I looked through their pamphlets and I literally said to myself, all right, what can you stomach studying for four years? Because I really didn't want to be there. Um, like a lot of like a lot of kids, you know, you're you either like school or you don't. I wasn't a huge fan of school, but somehow I still managed to maintain good grades and a, a good GPA. And um, a big part of the reason I was able to do that is because I chose journalism as my major of study over there at the University of Wisconsin River Falls. And I had this pipe dream that maybe one day I'd be able to write about hunting and make a living from it. And uh, then we had. 9-11 and um, as soon as I graduated the economy took a, a gigantic shit 
And I was left with a really rough market for getting into journalism. I couldn't even get a, a daily reporting job at a $10 an hour newspaper because a lot of the veteran journalists were having to take lesser jobs like that. So throughout that time, I continued to flip burgers. I worked at a couple of different restaurants. And um, that's also what uh, helped hone in my my dual passion with hunting, which is cooking and specifically cooking wild game. It's something I've been doing now for a while. And uh, I can also thank my great uncle Al here for that, because I remember growing up, coming up here for deer season, you know, I'd only have two days. If I shot a deer, we'd go drop it off at the local butcher shop. And it was, uh, it was pretty unsightly. You'd get there, there'd be 30 deer lying on the ground. You'd throw yours in the pile and a couple months later you'd get back some mystery meat you don't know if it's your deer you don't know if it's the one that's been laying there gut shot for two days um and you know i couldn't put two into i couldn't put two and two together at the time i realized my venison never really tasted that great but every time i'd come up here and you'd serve a roast or chili or steak or whatever it might be it was always just damn good and then finally what happened was I was able to come up here and stay a little bit longer a couple times just myself. So me and you sitting here in deer camp, um, the other guys had families and things got busy, so they weren't able to make it up much anymore. And so I'd sit here with, with my uncle Al and we processed my deer while I was here and we would do everything ourselves. And that was a turning point for me. Um, had that not happened, I, I don't know where I would have stood on, uh, wild game and, and cooking wild game, eating wild game. And frankly, um, it, it could have acted as a major deterrent for me being a hunter going into the future, just because I didn't really like the idea of shooting animals that didn't taste good. But reality is the whole time they did taste good. I just didn't know how to, I didn't know how to prepare them until he showed me. So I guess what I'm getting at here is this place that I'm sitting at really, really formed who I am as a person and as a hunter. And uh, I think it's important to look back in history um, when you're trying to trace the lines of anything that's important to you. And going back to here, going back here to my uncle Al, um, my history is born in his history as a hunter. And I'd love to hear a little bit about um, some of your adventures growing up and uh, when you decided to jump in the truck and go west and go to Canada and stuff like that. Well, there wasn't much for deer around here yet when I got out of service. There are some here, but not a lot. So actually, the first deer I ever shot was in Montana. Back in the early 60s, we made three years in a row, we went out and hunted out there in Montana and then my main hunting partner got married and didn't go out there anymore. So the next next hunting excursions was uh, when we started going to Canada hunting moose. We made many, many trips to Canada hunting moose. We had some great trips up there. We would take uh, one canoe per person with a small outboard. We didn't need that going in, but if you got some moose, we needed the capacity coming out. And a lot of our trips back, we'd go back in the wilderness and on a small stream or river in, in Canada and Probably never see another white man the whole time we're back there. So we had some great trips out there, you know. And then I made elk hunting trips to Idaho, Colorado, uh, Montana. 
but uh, I try lots and lots of deer here. And so, you know, obviously, out of anybody on the the Skoglin side of my family, um, and anybody who had spent any amount of time here at the farm or uh, grew up here, you were certainly the most hardcore hunter. Um, what do you what what was it that you that gave you that bug? Why did why did you make that kind of your number one? Well, you grew up hunting, and it's something that just continued on. But you know, uh, like I said, Dad hunted quite a bit. He just shot a lot of grouse, pheasants, and ducks. But uh, I was breeding no deer for him to hunt. But <clears throat> I guess hunting with Dad, and and I wasn't very old, and I was hunting on my own. It's just something that you got. Yeah, you, know, you grew up with, and you just stuck by it. You know. Just got in your blood. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess uh, I probably, even though you and I have only traveled together a couple times or been out of town on a couple of different outdoor adventures, um, somewhere along the line, you must have brushed or rubbed some of that off on me because, you know, for me, I like traveling. I like seeing different parts of the world, experiencing different cultures, different foods, just seeing different areas, exploring and whatnot. But when it comes to traveling, there's nothing that gets me more motivated to go explore an area than hunting. No. Um, it, it gives me a purpose. It gives me a reason to go somewhere. And it's a, it's a very tangible reason to go somewhere. You know, I, I don't like to just be an observer. I like to be a participant. And I feel like, you know, when you, when you lace up a pair of hunting boots and you set off, you know, on some trail out in the middle of nowhere, that's, uh, it's extremely liberating, but I, th I feel like it's also probably the purest and most holistic way to see different parts of the world. Because as a hunter, you force yourself to pay attention to small details and you see a lot of things out there that other people might just walk right by. And then I feel like that transfers into everyday life. Um, you know, some people might look out the window and they don't really see anything, but I might look out the window at my house and I see, you know, in my neighbor's tree, I see a, a woodpecker or a squirrel or something like that. And those small things I'm able to recognize and appreciate. And it adds a little bit of light in what, what could other just, what, what could otherwise just be a monotonous day. Um, especially considering I live in, suburbia and uh i mean to be honest at some point i'd probably like to retire in the country but um right now i i i don't necessarily love living in suburbia but at the same time i'm i'm willing to admit that um i couldn't i couldn't go full country i like to kind of have a blend and i think having um a home base in suburbia right now, I'm, I'm okay with that because there's a lot of conveniences at my disposal that are easy to get to and traveling, um, you know, jumping on and off planes to go to different parts of the country for my job makes it a lot easier in that regard. But um, I guess, you know, that's, that's the home base. But then when I get to go travel somewhere to hunt or just to go do some fun travel, um, I get to look forward to that. And I feel like, uh, you know, there's definitely some benefits that I could take advantage of uh, for my lifestyle if I lived in the country like it'd be a dream of mine to just be able to shoot off my back porch with a, with a cup of coffee every morning but uh, 
it's it's also nice to to use it as a getaway per se and so maybe eventually i'll i'll live uh somewhere here like the farm where it's just peaceful and pretty secluded and you don't have to deal with the the bs of rush hour and people running around like maniacs but uh, i guess there's a, a weird part of me that still uh it gravitates towards some of that chaos um so moving on here um eating wild game you know i i don't know if i've ever been up here where you've ever served me a meal that wasn't some form of wild game um would you say it's been a mainstay of your diet for the majority of your life? Quite a bit. Quite a bit, yeah. yeah. And a lot of folks kind of look at wild game as secondary in their diet, um, almost like a novelty and second rate, frankly. Um, I still hear guys who are hunters all the time say that they'd much rather have a steak off of a, a beef cow than you know, maybe a tenderloin off of a deer. And for me, it's the opposite. Yeah, um, yeah. I find it very difficult to, to buy any domestic meat. Well, I think a lot of people that are turned off on, on deer, moose or anything, because it doesn't, doesn't get taken care of properly, you know. So let's go through some of that. Um, obviously, I've learned from you, and now I'm uh, pretty, I'm, I'm pretty anal retentive and meticulous about how I take care of all my wild animals, which I learned from you, but Let's, let's go through the, the process. So we go out there, we shoot a deer, and how do you take it from there? Let's, let's go from field to table. Well, you want to dress it out, remove the entrails as soon as you can, and get the hide off as soon as you can. That hide holds an awful lot of heat, and then the meat needs to get cooled out quick, you know. Once it's cooled out, it can, can survive some fairly warm weather, but you got to get that original heat out of there. And you got to keep it clean, you know. Uh, I've seen in the local butcher shop, I was in there one day and there was this fawn laying on the floor in the butcher shop. <clears throat> it had been shot three times and drugged through the swamp. <laughs> and the butcher said, what the heck am I going to do with this damn thing? He said, I know they want about 100 pounds of processed meat out of there and there's nothing left to save, you know. <laughs> but it was, there was mud and grass in the cavity and been shot to the guts and, and two more places. Uh, it wasn't worth taking home, you know, but there it was. They expect to get decent meat out of it, but you're not going to, you know. So after after you've properly cooled the carcass by um, either field dressing it or removing the guts at some point, skinning it, usually you'll hang it. Yeah. And what's your uh, what's your reasoning behind that? Well, it uh, <clears throat> we'd like to think that it's aging and get be more tender. Um, some people say it doesn't do any good, but it does not hurt to age it. It doesn't hurt it, you know. I think it does help some. But you have to keep it at a decent temperature. You should have it probably around 40 degrees, 38 to 42, somewhere in there. Uh, if it gets too cold, it won't age. Uh, you want to keep it above 36 degrees, you know, around 40. <clears throat> but we always try to age. And if, uh, if I bone a deer out and it's... Uh, if it's uh, too warm outside to age your meat, I put it in plastic and put it in the refrigerator <clears throat> for a week or so after I boned it out. And so the other the other main reason why you like to to hang your big game animals is simply because that's that's where you do the your cutting as well. Yeah. That's where you do all the boning out. Yeah. And um, 
you've got a, a variety of different knives that you use for special purposes. Tell yeah. me, tell me about those knives. Well, if you a knife for skinning is generally a shorter curved blade. It's handier. A shorter blade is you can be more accurate with a short blade. But when it comes to boning out, <clears throat> I use a six-inch fillet knife. I like a fillet knife better than a, than a, what they call the boning knife. And take out your your back straps. And I've got about a seven and a half inch, somewhat curved blade for taking the shoulders off and then taking the meat off the hams. But the the uh, about a six inch fillet knife works terrific for cleaning up the trim and this and that, you know. And and so what um, you mentioned the a shorter curved blade for skinning because it's handier. You can you can do a more detailed, better work with that, easier to control. Um, why the fillet knife for the boning? Uh, the regular boning knife that you buy is a pretty much a straight blade generally. And uh, the fillet knife that I have has got a quite an upswit curve to it. And it just seems to work a lot better. And you want, <clears throat> you want a blade that's very narrow and thin and narrow because you can maneuver around uh, especially around the hip bones and stuff like that. You can move around in there much easier. Yeah, so for those of you who aren't uh, really that immersed in the world of hunting cutlery and um, blade shapes and different designs and whatnot, this is what he's given us here is a pretty dang good breakdown. And so with that fillet knife, um, the reason why you want that thinner, longer curved blade is like he said, maneuverability, um, the more surface area you have on your blade, the wider blade you have, the more difficult it is to rotate it and move it around as you're following bones and stuff like that. And also um, with that thinner, longer blade, you're going to also have that flexibility just like you want when you're filleting a fish. Um, you want to be able to bend the blade a little bit if you need to, to work around some of those bones. And in turn, you're going to get much more complete better cuts uh, off that animal and you know once you get a little bit longer or um, once you progress more in your butchering capabilities you start to take pride in cleaning those animals and um, not just the finished product but actually what it looks like when it comes off the bone and I, I guess a good way to measure that is how much additional trimming do you have to go do after you get those primary cuts off of the animal. If you have to go and clean up a lot of trim that you're gonna throw in your hamburger or sausage pile, then odds are um, you still just need a little bit more practice working around those bones and you're maybe not using the right knife. So all these things come together and it really becomes a process and it requires practice. I mean, a lot of practice. If, if you're gonna only shoot one deer every couple of years or even just one deer a year um, it really becomes difficult to become super proficient at butchering but i can tell you what even if you're not that good it's less expensive than bringing it to a butcher shop you know what meat you're going to get and if you got a buddy around or something like that it's a really it's an enjoyable process um butchering is one of my favorite things to do especially uh if I've got a friend or family member there to, to join the party, um, it's not something you got to rush through and you don't want to, cause you're dealing with sharp blades and stuff like that. But, um, you can make a, you can make a little party out of it. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, 
when you put that meat on the table, you're going to feel a sense of accomplishment. And it's, there's a lot of rewarding nature to butchering your own animals because you know that you carried out everything from start to finish from the time that you, you know, set up your rifle and bought your ammo and took that animal, gutted that animal, skinned that animal, got the meat off of it. And then when you finally throw it on a plate and serve it to somebody or take some and eat it for yourself, um, there's really nothing like it in the world. So I highly encourage any of you to consider doing your own butchering of your game uh, if you haven't in the past. And for those of you who are uh, maybe getting burned out on it, just maybe rethink your strategy a little bit. Um, and it's all in the process. And the more time you spend thinking about that and putting it together in the right manner, um, the more enjoyable it's going to be. So set yourself up for success with butchering your animals and don't get yourself in a position where you're going to ultimately make it a crappy experience just because you didn't take the time to plan it out. Now we've gone through some of the butchering. Um, tell me about preparation. Uh, where do you think people make some of the biggest mistakes and what are some of your favorite ways, um, to prepare, let's just say venison in specific, because every animal is different, but venison goes between whitetail, mule deer, antelope, moose, elk, any big game animal. Um, let's just call it red meat, venison. What do you think? Well, a lot of people, uh, when they process their deer, especially, they leave tallow on it. And uh, deer tallow, you do not want. Trim off the tallow. Don't now, for, for folks who aren't familiar with tallow, what is tallow? It's basically just deer fat. So when you're looking at that animal, there will be there will be a couple different kinds of fat. And the fat that you want to avoid that he's talking about and what he's calling tallow, that's the greasy, waxy stuff that, um, you know, if you scraped it with your fingernail, it would come right off. It's the kind of stuff that maybe you'd be better off feeding to the birds. You would save that for the birds, definitely, yeah. But you want to trim it off and... And uh, don't uh, you want to do it before you package it and freeze it? You don't want to you don't want to put that meat in the freezer with tallow on it. But uh, but then when it comes to cooking uh, uh, venison, you want to let it get dry, uh, keep it moist. It's, it's, well, it's typical just about all the wild game uh, <clears throat> roasting a turkey or whatever. You want to keep it basted, keep it moist. Don't let it dry out on you, and don't overcook it. You know, don't overcook it. What would you say your favorite way is to prepare a whitetail? Well, it depends on the cut of meat you're talking about. Um, um, if you've got a whitetail that's maybe a little bit older and a little bit tougher, I'll pound some seasoning and flour into it and uh, then brown it and then put it in the oven and bake it with uh, Korean mushroom soup on it. That's definitely an old classic. That that cream of mushroom uh, helps maintain the moisture and it, it yeah. works some of that creamy flavor into the meat. Yeah. And uh, even though that's one that a lot of folks have used for decades, it's uh, it is a timeless favorite. So actually, uh, I haven't done it for so long that I might have to go and and uh, utilize that that old school method for the deer that I just shot here yesterday morning. Yeah, he's a pretty mature buck. He might be on a tough side. But if you get a animal that's not too old, and especially with the chops now, uh, you take the loins out and uh, make chops out of it, you can quite often just pan fry them 
and they're good, but don't over fry them. Don't get, you know, they don't have to be a little pink in the middle, you know. Now, another, another uh, thing that took me a while to, I guess, to, to get comfortable with and to um, get past just the, uh, the mental game of it is deer heart. Um, oh. I actually did an out, uh, actually did an article for outdoor life recently. <clears throat> and it's, uh, it was a part of a series of articles on, um, wild game traditions, if you will. And the one that I wrote about was my experience with deer heart. And I reflected on how growing up around here with you hunting, um, you'd always show up. It was, you're almost like a, a buzzard or something. I don't I don't know how it was uncanny, but somehow you just, a lot of the time you knew when I had a deer down and that, this was even before we had cell phones and stuff. So by the time I'd even, a lot of times before I'd even be on my blood trail, my uncle would show up and he'd be there with his knives, but he'd also be there with usually a Ziploc bag or a, a plastic grocery bag of some sort. And he'd always ask me if I was going to keep the heart. And I'm thinking, why the hell would I want to do that? <laughs> so he'd grab the heart out of the gut pile. I wouldn't ask any questions. He'd bring it back here to the, to the house. And anytime I'd go in to grab a, a beverage out of the fridge, I'd see this damn heart sitting in there in water. And for a while, I just thought maybe you're a little crazy. <laughs> but uh, then kind of like with uh, how I learned, you know, the, the value of doing your own butchering. Eventually, I, I stayed up here a little bit longer than I normally would for uh, like opener a deer weekend or deer season, and I saw what you're doing with the heart. And I think maybe the first year or two, I didn't partake. I was I was still a little bit taken aback, and just like I said before, the mental game of eating a heart, eating an organ—it's something I hadn't done before. But then when I finally tried it, it was a game changer for me. <laughs> and uh, as a matter of fact, I did a a short video for Mossy Oak uh, about a year or two ago on pickling deer heart, oh, yeah. which is something I learned from you. And so, you know, for those of you who end up walking away from your, your gut pile without that heart, that's another thing you might want to reconsider. And uh, it is a, it is a damn fine piece of meat. It is. It is. Yeah. The, the texture, um, the flavor, everything about it, it's actually a, uh, think about it it's a it's probably the most well-tuned muscle in any creature's body so you have to imagine that it's a it's going to be a pretty good cut of meat and it sure is if you do it right so i mentioned before pickling it is a great way to go um i won't get into the whole process you can always uh try to find my video online through mossy oak but what are some other ways you like to do the heart well boil it up and and eat it uh Eat it like lunch meat, you know, the cold after it's been boiled up, you know. But I put a lot of spices in when I boil it. I put a lot of onion in there and salt and pepper, of course, and uh, bay leaves and some whole allspice while you're cooking it. And it takes about two and a half hours of, of simmering it to do, do a good job on it. But you can eat it right then or you just put it in the refrigerator and eat it cold whenever you want to. But you can then also slice it up and, and pickle it, you know. And it keeps quite a while being pickled in the refrigerator. But uh, uh, a lot of people just throw it in the hamburger, grind it up in a hamburger, but to, that's kind of a poor way to use a good cut of meat in a hamburger. You know? 
I'd say, yeah, the the heart is certainly worthy of uh, a little bit better treatment than throwing it in the grinder. Um, a couple other things I want to cover here on this first podcast. Uh, I can't thank you all enough for listening. Um, you know, when I started this or decided to start this podcast, uh, well, first of all, it took a, a while for me to to decide if I even wanted to do it because there are a lot of great hunting podcasts out there. But what I've come to realize, at least as a listener myself, is I can't get enough of them. And so the reason I wanted to do this is because I just, I'm fortunate to spend a lot of time in the outdoors throughout the course of the year. Um, I get to, to go to some great places to hunt for just personal trips and some things related to my career. And I get a lot of these experiences that even though I'm writing articles and doing videos and things like that, there are so many little nuggets that I just can't fit into everything else I'm already doing. And I think a podcast is a really great way to share these types of experiences. And for me, when it comes to hunting, um, it truly is about the the entire experience. It's not just going out there and filling a tag. Um, When I go on a trip, whether it's just up here to my family's farm or somewhere a little bit more, um, you know, more of a dream trip out West or some big luxurious travel. When I say luxurious for for me, luxury doesn't take much. It's sleeping in a tent by a fire, but that's luxury. And uh, it's, it's about the people. It's about the places. It's about the things you get to see. Um, It's about all those little things. Like I had mentioned earlier that you can pick up on as a hunter. And I love hearing about what other people have going on. I love hearing about other people's adventures. And frankly, that's because it's a way to, to live vicariously through somebody else in our, our tight knit hunting community when you're not able to get out there and do those things yourself. So whether you're just using a podcast as a way to unwind after work, or maybe you're having to sit in rush hour and wanting to make the most of your time, uh, a podcast is a great way to do it. And if you're addicted to hunting like I am and so many others are who I know, um, I hope you're going to find a lot of value in this podcast here. Um, We're going to have folks on like my uncle who has volumes of hunting experience and some of the greatest stories and um, some of those some of those old school tales that you just don't get much of anymore. Um, We're going to have folks like him. We might have some product experts who maybe talk about a new rifle or new ammo or some new type of hunting gear um, and break some of that stuff down in more detail. We might talk about specific field notes from an adventure, more of a a journal style on here. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to limit the scope of what this podcast is going to be, at least not at this point. I'm going to just roll it out, um, see what happens, see what people seem to enjoy as listeners And being the Hunger Podcast, and uh, as you've heard here with my great uncle, with my upbringing, hunting means meat for me. And that has really been a focal point of a lot of the content I have created over the last 10 years. And so when I say the hunger, it's about that hunger to get out there and experience the outdoors. It's It's that hunger to go out there and pursue game. And it's also feeding that hunger at the dinner table with that game that you were able to successfully harvest. So again, I want to thank you for listening to this first episode. I hope you'll tune into the rest of them. I hope you'll subscribe. But before we before we leave here, there's a couple of things I'd like to cover. Um, 
I just foreshadowed a few minutes ago a deer I shot yesterday morning. <laughs> and I think uh, we should probably share a little bit about that story because not only is it an awesome whitetail buck, but there's an awesome story that goes along with it. Um, 22 years I've been hunting up here, and the guy sitting at this table with me right now, he's got a, he's got a honey hole that we fondly refer to as the 80. It's 180 acres of pretty premium deer ground. And um, I think everybody who's ever hunted up here just kind of knows it's an unwritten, unspoken law that that's your spot. And so I've never even asked to get in there and hunt. And uh, as a matter of fact, you did let me, let me do one archery sit there uh, a number of years ago on the field edge. And uh, it was just the last evening of my hunt up here and I didn't have a whole lot of time, but I had never, I'd never seen um, beyond the surface. Uh, I'd never stepped foot in those woods. And that all changed for me when I got up here two days ago and my original plans um, to hunt a different spot, you had glassed the evening before and you didn't see anything. So I'm at the shooting range two evenings ago, right when I got up here and my great uncle pulls in and he goes, I got bad news for you. There's no deer where you want to go hunt. And I'm just like, well, what the hell am I going to do then? You know, I'm sitting there kind of kicking rocks. He's like, well, oh, let me go show you a couple spots here on the 80. And uh, my eyes must have lit up. And if they didn't, it's because I was trying not to let on to my excitement. But um, tell me about, tell me about uh, what our strategy was and uh, the morning and evening spots that you showed me. Well, the spot for the morning hunt is in the woods. Uh, going to that stand, if you're, you're going to chase the deer off the field anyway, so no point in being on the edge of the woods. But it's down in the woods, not not very far, maybe, well, I suppose 100 yards or so. But there's always deer traveling back and forth between there, and there's a slough hole right there for water. And there's there's always some deer go by. If you sit in that stand, you'll, you're guaranteed to see some deer. But the other stand, I was going to put them on in the evening. That's on the north end of the woods. The deer come out of the woods, going out to the fields to feed, and it's kind of a staging area there. It's a little bit of a little bit of a clearing, uh, but there's trees all around you, and the deer will come there and just hang around before they go out and out to feed. And so it's a very evening hunt. It's great, uh, <clears throat> but there's one spot in between those two on the edge of the field where. Uh, my nephew, his uncle, have both taken deer from that stand with, with bows, and I've shot many with a gun from there. But the deer hadn't been coming out in the fields at night at all, so that was not an option for evening shoot. So I was going to put him on a north stand in that staging area, but uh, he never got there because he screwed up and shot this big buck instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, you know, just in general for whitetails from tree stands, I have not had... I could probably count the number of deer I've killed on morning hunts, maybe even on one hand, definitely on two hands. So when you showed me those two spots for the morning and evening sits, for that morning one, I never anticipated that I was going to see a big buck. Um, I figured maybe I'd see some deer activity. At, at minimum, I was going to get out there and hunt. I mean, like they say, you can't kill them from the couch. And heck, I'd rather just be out there watching birds fly around, if anything, than than sitting back on the couch. So, um, 
I got out there in the morning and I think, uh, before I get to that, I should just give a, a quick description, um, that gives, that gives listeners a little bit better idea of what the lay of the land looks like here. So in a nutshell, what we've got is a couple of different strips of timber on this property. You've got some swamps and then you've got some big fields. And as he mentioned, um, the deer just have not been going out to the fields during daylight based on his observations. Um, most of them are getting to the food after dark and the food right now on that property, uh, unfortunately for the, the guy who uh, leases that property for agriculture, he was not able to get his corn out. So there is a ton of standing corn that the deer have just been pillaging. Uh, we walked through there thousands of tracks uh, coming from every direction. There's deer coming from who knows how far away uh, in this section to, to get to that standing corn. Uh, all the outer rows are completely demolished. Uh, they're just picking their way through it. And I would not be one bit surprised if, if you were able to watch that in the dark. There's easily got to be over 100 deer that are coming in there. There might even be 200 for all I know, but they're coming from every direction. And uh, if you're out there at night, you better take cover because it's like a war up there. But as he as he noted, um, even though during the late season, which it is now, as we record this podcast, it's December, it's muzzleloader season in Minnesota. We've already had fire regular firearm season roll through. We've had archery season going since September, but a lot of these deer have been hunted. Um, some of them have been shot at. Uh, a lot of their brethren have ended up in people's freezers, but the reality is they're on a late season pattern right now and it's a bed to food routine. So they're bedding in thick cover and then they're coming out to find food in the evenings. And on that property, that food source is the standing corn. So your best odds of connecting with a deer and especially a mature buck are your, your best odds are to hunt in the timber or in some sort of staging area that they're congregating in before they finally get the guts to show themselves out in the open fields. But most of the time right now that is after dark. So they've got plenty of confidence to be able to leave the security of the woods. So this first spot that he put me in for my, for my morning hunt, um, I walk in there in the dark, get there plenty early. I had my camera gear with me. So I had to fiddle with that, um, which I'm not a big fan of self filming, but I thought I'd give it a shot on this hunt. And thankfully it ended up working out, but, when I got into the stand that morning, it was a homemade stand that my, my great uncle had made. Uh, he makes all of his own stands. He makes hang-ons, he makes ladders, and he makes uh, sort of tower blind style stands. And these things are rock solid, they're silent, and they're just super comfortable. So it makes it easy to sit there and endure a long sit, especially this time of year when the high is usually around 20 degrees. So when I got in, when I got in there in the morning, I climbed up in that stand, and the only downside was that we had some snow, so the platform had some crusty snow on it, and there was no way for me to brush it all off. So it was really crunchy, and uh, I just did my best to not move my feet at all. But as I was getting set up in the dark before legal shooting, I had one buck that was trying to make his way through on a scent trail. He busted me. He saw me. 
he ran off. And so I kind of started out with low morale. Um, it's always the worst when you get into a stand in the morning and you bust a deer, especially a buck right away. Um, but at the same time, remaining optimistic, he was moving and movement is good this time of year. You'll take whatever kind of movement you can get. He was on a scent trail. He was still trying to explore some does for what would be the second rut up here. Um, but then as the light started to crack, I started to see a lot more deer movement across this swamp for me in the thick cover. I saw deer bedding down, getting up, uh, trading in and out. I saw deer coming and going, um, different deer moving in. And so it was just the perfect storm where you had to tell yourself, it's just a matter of time. If there's a mature buck in this area, he's going to come through. He's going to scent check this bedding area. And he's going to want to poke around a little bit to see what's going on around here in case there's any, any does left to breed. So as I'm watching all this, I see a fork horn. I see a small basket rack, six point mingling coming in and out. But I just wasn't seeing a single, not even a, uh, not even a two-year-old or three-year-old buck. Just, they just weren't showing up. But then after that morning of watching these deer screwing around over in that thick cover, it was like a light switch flipped and one of the does got up from her bed and she started to lead several of her uh, compadres over across this frozen open swamp in my direction. And now we had a south wind and I knew where she was going to end up. It was going to be downwind of me. So I was really concerned that my whole morning was going to be blown when she got downwind. And that was the, I was concerned about the south wind before I even went and sat this spot. But tell me about the wind in that spot. Um, you don't, generally don't have to worry about it. You're up about 10 feet or so. And uh, scent generally carries out over them. I've had deer walk all the way around my stand several times and never pick up on you, you know. So I generally don't worry about the wind there. It's, it's one of those rare spots where you can get away with stuff. And, uh, you know, it's not often that you encounter a spot like that, but that's probably the reason why you've killed some dang good deer off that stand. A lot of deer off that stand, yeah. And speaking of dang good deer, um, that doe did lead some of her compadres right over in front of me. And I almost thought I was going to get picked off at one point. One of them looked up at me, but it, uh, I just stayed still. It didn't know what I was. Um, I had some good camouflage on, so I was blending in. And uh whole time I'm running my camera, trying to get some great footage of these deer. Um, well, then they started to bed down in front of me, which was really neat. And that was proof that they were really comfortable. So some were bedding, some were browsing. And then from the opposite side of where they came in, I saw a doe with fawns all of a sudden showed up just silently. And I was watching them trying to figure out where they came from. But then my attention was quickly taken to a really beautiful set of antlers coming through the brush, heading toward those deer that were bedded in front of me. And then a second set of antlers. And it was one of those instances where there was no time to even pull up my binocular or try to analyze these bucks and try to figure out which one was bigger. None of that nonsense was going to go down. It was going to be whatever buck gives me the first clear shot in this brushy timber that was the buck I was going to take. Uh, I wasn't going to be stupid or greedy and try to count antler tines or anything like that. I just knew that either of these bucks were mature. They were big. They were beautiful. 
and I was going to be very happy to take either of them. And so the first one ended up making his way through a really small shooting window. And uh, I raised my muzzle loader. I made sure the camera was on him. And I shot. The smoke rolled. And he went, what, 20 yards? Yeah. Uh, I shot him with a, a lead muzzle, muzzle loader bullet from Federal. Um, I've taken a few animals with that bullet now. And it is absolutely devastating and i learned that once again with this buck because he didn't go far and um i couldn't believe what had just happened you know that here's a here's a spot that i'd never even seen in 22 years of deer hunting up here and the first time i sit on that stand that my great uncle put me on i shot the best buck i've ever i've ever taken up here and i did it with my muzzle loader in the late season so what a hunt um we spent the evening back here together just like we always have done boning that deer out on my great uncle's homemade meat pole that he's got out here with this intricate pulley system makes it really handy to move deer around and um i wouldn't have had it any other way we use we used his uh homemade meat pole we used his handmade knives and then when we came in we celebrated with a glass of handmade wine Speaking of a glass of wine, cheers to you in joining me for this first episode of The Hunger Podcast. I really hope you like what you heard here today. I know this episode was laid back and it ran a bit long, but I hope you enjoyed meeting my uncle, hearing his old stories, and getting a taste of where I came from. Next week, I'll bring you to a very special ranch across the border in Sonora, Mexico, where I'll be hunting coos deer with a bunch of good folks. First, you'll hear about the mind-blowing history of Rancho Mababi, straight from Alice Valenzuela, one of the ranch owners. And then the following week, I'll sit down with my hunting buddy, Brad Fitzpatrick, to recap our bucket list coos deer hunt.